Hello, and thanks for joining us. I am your host, behavioral coach Jeffrey Biesecker. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside, that beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. This is episode number 101. Our personal traumas. They often leave an indelible mark, a scar to remind us of the very real and often heartbreaking pains experienced throughout life. Our guest today, author Lindsay Jewell, shares such a story in her latest book, Cycles of the Sevens, My Soul's Journey, which serves as a signpost to help guide others throughout the often hellish journey through childhood assault, sexual abuse, mental health, and addiction. In a vulnerably honest and genuine look at her circumstances, Lindsay shares how others can find hope while connecting the dots to overcome the traumatic events and experiences in their lives. Tune in to find out how on this episode of The Light Inside. What's the key to a happy and fulfilling life? I think it's the fear of showing up in our purity and our truth. We fear the light. That's what I feel like this whole journey has brought me to. Oftentimes, the things that we think will make us happy will not bring us safety and security. At the end of the day, we are a sovereign, energetic being who has all the tools already on the inside. It is within your fingertips. You can create the life that you want. And the only person that is stopping you from creating that life is you. Our greatest trend transformation happens from deep within. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside, that beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. Visit us at www.thelightinside.us to find out more. So much of life is a paradox, our very being often full of challenge and adversity. And some, well, they simply endure the most harrowing and unimaginable of experiences. Our guest today, Lindsay Jewell, is truly an inspiration. She has overcome the unimaginable events she has faced throughout life, rising on the other side to become a beacon of hope for others. I'm grateful to have you join us as we share Lindsay's awe-inspiring story of resiliency and triumph, exploring her fierce journey, battling beyond the scars and traumas of childhood molestation, sexual assault, and addiction. How does one person overcome such seemingly unsurmountable adversity? Today, we join Lindsay as she shares her story and insights into this poignant two-part episode. Now, let's say hello. Hello, Lindsay. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. It's good to finally get together. I know this has been a good while in the making. I know. I know. Well, thank you. It is all a testament to the energy of the program and the community we've built behind it. Good. It's all finding that resonance and that energetic alignment with the next direction. I need to hire you. <laughs> <laughs> you speak so well. I love it. So with that said, are you ready to lean into a conversation discussing your book, your story, and what you took away from that experience? Yeah. I got this, can do it. This is also like therapy for me too. You know, it's like, we're, it's like a two-way street. Like it helps Everything people, but it also- in life is therapy. And that's it where is. That, <laughs> To me, that's that relationship of what is meant for you, find you, because everything literally is therapy. And whether something sends it down or you just work toward getting it, I agree. it's all the same point. Whether or not you dissect <laughs> that in all the different ways, it finds you. Just be available and take the message. And what do you do with it? where do you <laughs> in and run? And I love I love philosophy and I love debate and I love dissecting problems. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that is exactly why you will find the path in the way, and that light will just simply shine. So, just be you in that way that you know how. So, <laughs> with that in mind. Okay. <laughs> You are an author having just released a new book called Cycle of Sevens, My Soul Journey, 
which details how you have risen from the hellish experiences resulting from mental and physical abuse, childhood trauma, and addiction. Your story is one of both trial and triumph leading to change of self-discovery. Share with us a little bit about that experience. Oh, well, it's been a long journey of um, traumatic experience. So yes, at six, went through childhood molestation and it wasn't just, I don't want to say normal, nothing's normal about molestation, but the guy did get convicted. We had to go to his sentencing. We had to watch him on TV in shackles. And that is very difficult as a six-year-old that was a awful experience that is where everything in my life changed because I was six. And um, when those incidences occurred, it shut me down. So your fight, flight, or freeze, I, yeah, I'm a freezer. Well, now they've added a P, so I'm like, dang, there's another one that I do too, <laughs> you know? You're always throwing and, us curves. It keeps us moving, right? They, 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 I don't know when this just came up, but yeah, it's called a P's, and I'm like, oh, which one am I not? Yeah, right before that, I, I remember loving, and sorry to go back real quick, but I remember loving life and just, I was a kid and I believed everything connected, everything talked and I loved animals. I believe everything communicates to us. It was just, I was a kid. And so when that trauma occurred, it did something, obviously. I mean, not only did guilt, shame, and I didn't even know what guilt and shame were, right? It somehow stuck into me and trust and all that. You're supposed to trust adults, but you're told to trust adults, right? As, as a child. And so obviously this man was a adult. And so immediately these things messed with my head. And um, it wasn't just me that was molested. It was other boys. This was the whole boy scout thing that has kind of came out. Right. But I was a convenient girl, I guess that was her. But, you know, we had detectives come pull us out from, I was in kindergarten and asking very explicit questions about this man. Now the guy had, well, for me, threatened me and told me if I was to tell my parents or anybody that he would kill them, hurt them. I mean, imagine being six and hearing that you're just, it's scary enough what's going on and you don't even really know what's going on, you know? And so what ended up happening was one of the boys that was being molested was very much showing signs that something was going on. And eventually his dad got it out of him. And that's when the whole case got brought up. And um, this is where I started. I can go back and look now and kind of see what I was feeling before at that age. I, I didn't know what I was feeling. Embarrassment, shame, guilt. I also felt like I had done something wrong because this guy was a friend to us, somebody that watched us when we played with the other kids. So this is somebody that I trusted. And now he's obviously in trouble because he's in handcuffs. There's police officers. We knew police officers obviously are there to protect, right? Yeah. So it must have been something I did. That's what my thought system was saying. It must have been something I did. It's bad. It's wrong. It is the most horrible experience, not only to mention when the case was going on, my parents moved and this man came into our school and said he was our uncle there to pick us up. And I remember my mom running into our elementary school, just, I just panicked actually. And I really think till this day, I, and I'm not, I don't, I, I think I'm correct, but I don't need the validation for it. I think that man was going to pick us up and kidnap us and God knows what to us, mm. you know, cause he was trying to sneak in and, yeah. and pick us up and we were just kids. Right. And so, you know, when all this stuff was going on, like me and my brother, I, I have one brother and we never talked about what happened, but we knew what happened. Right. And my parents, I, I knew, how do I explain it? Like, obviously they got, they knew what was going on, but it wasn't brought up exactly to us like hey did this happen to you but my parents were on edge everything was kind of started going 
you know, got disarray in the house. Um, my mother was an, is, is a nurse, but when we were little worked night shifts, right. My father is an engineer. And so everything shifted yes. in the household. It went from peaceful, loving family life, just normal. Yeah. I have great parents to chaos. And my brother, I guess, started acting out more, giving more signs of, of trauma and became like started washing his hands a lot yeah. and started doing stuff. And so my parents naturally, I mean, because no parent is given instructions for what to do. We just hope it never happens to our children. Right. But nobody gets instructions of what to do when this happens in your family life. And so my mother instinctively, I, and I, I believe as a nurse, you go through the, to the most crucial patient, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what, nothing she did was wrong. Everything they did was the best that they can do. Okay. My brother got a lot more attention and I shut down. I shut down because all I saw was chaos. My brother is, is just to let you know, just um, two years older than me. So I'm the little, but not much littler, but the little child. And um, so he was getting more attention. As I'm seeing all this chaos and disruption in the house, I didn't want to add any more of that by saying, hey, I don't feel good either. Something going on with me and I don't get it. Yeah. I didn't want to be touched. I didn't want to be hugged even by my own father. And he didn't do anything. I just... Yeah. That's what happened with this. I became very, I started shutting down and stuffing my feelings, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know what that meant until one day it erupted, right? And um, me and my brother's relationship went from best friends as kids to then estranged. And it was that way for very, very, actually, we just now kind of are back to kind of brother and sister, you know, it, it, it really, it really did some damage and um, to make matters worse, if that wasn't enough. And this is happens because I've gone through a lot of therapy and read a lot of books, but when kids are molested, sometimes because they don't understand what's going on, they molest other people. And that's, so I was also molested by the other little kids. Not that I hold like, not, you know, I didn't, I thought I just blamed the man for a long time, you know, but there, there was a lot of just stuff. So um, my parents did the best they could. We moved again, we moved a lot. And that's another thing that affects your probably have abandonment issues or something or something like I don't like adjustment adjustment because we just had to keep moving all the time to run away. And that's probably my instinct always to like, oh my God, so I don't like it. Something's going on in my life. I got to run, got to move, got to move, got to move, you know? So my brother, we moved then to California from Colorado and my, I think obviously, well, who would want to stay where their kids were molested, right? So the guy did get sentenced to 22 years, you know? Mm. And I remember in the courtroom, him actually saying like that he had been molested too, and it was just all bad at that time, especially as a little girl. So we ended up moving to California and California added some more nice distorted beliefs onto my system because California is a very different place versus Colorado. Yes. Um, they care what you look like, even in third grade and second and third grade. It matters what you look like and what your parents do. And that's what I experienced. And that's the way the schools were. We um, we lived in Westminster and then Laguna Niguel, which is, you know, whatever. But um, starting school was always hard, you know, starting in the middle of class and being the new kid. And then all of a sudden realizing that you're not as accepted because you're not as skinny enough or you're not rich enough or you're not this enough. And so all of those then stemmed into my I'm no good I'm not pretty enough. I'm not, you know, so then we have more thoughts that arise. And my brother then, it just got worse from there and started just, you know, acting out more for attention, starting dressing different. I think started maybe dabbling in substance at that time. And my parents were always, it was always, 
I mean, he do he just do stuff like you know, like vandalize or something, you know, attention seeking. And so once again, my brother's getting all this attention from the negative stuff that he was doing. And there's me who just was kind of not intentionally, but it's how it felt just kicked to the side, right? Lindsay's fine. She's good because she's quiet and she does what she needs to do. Hmm. So here's another thing that I've realized is why I'm a perfectionist. (laughs) Um, My brother kind of was the first one to veer off the path of what parents want as far as college and this career and all this life. And so there's the kid that's left alone who's got to pick up all the pieces. And that was me. (laughs) That was me. But little did they know that I was dealing with a lot of mental stuff. Right. And I just didn't show it. I didn't show it. I learned to pretend that everything was fine. I learned to act and present very well, but inside something else was going on and I didn't understand. My parents did put us in therapy. My brother went first, obviously for many years. And then they put me in therapy and this was in the, in the earlier, you know, like your nine, early nineties and stuff. I think the world was pushing pills more for trauma and um, for therapy. And now we've shifted into a whole new way of healing, but being a child and being told by a doctor, Oh, you went through trauma. Here's this medication for you. It'll get better. You believe it. Right. Yes. Well, so I tried their Prozac or whatever they had given me and those feelings weren't going away. And so I had found by watching a movie, somebody, it was a kind of a horror movie. I think I, I don't even remember what it was, but somebody in the movie tried slitting their wrists to try to kill themselves. And for some reason, I Obviously, it, when when you stuff your emotions, all it takes is like spilling a glass of milk or something. And that's the, the breaking point for you. <laughs> right. Mm. And so between all the stuffing emotions and um, whatever happened at school or whatever, I thought, hey, maybe there's a reason why somebody would cut their wrists or, or maybe there's, you know, picked up a, a shaving razor and you know, cut myself. And immediately there's many things that came over my mind. I, I think I was, cause I was in, I think fifth, sixth grade when I did this. So that's going calculating age, I think at 10, 11. Yeah. <laughs> um, so immediately so many things went through my mind. First of all, like, ow, this burns totally. Right. And second of all, but I'm not thinking about what's bothering me really yeah. quickly. Right. And then second of all, it's like, oh my God, my parents are going to see this. I've got to hide this because they're going to get mad at me for seeing this. Right. And that's when they did see that, that's part of me wanted to show them too, but not just, Hey, look what I did at kind of a sneaky way because I, I was hurting. Yes. I was hurting. Mm. And um, when they did see this, you know, because obviously I, yeah, I can like band-aid it and stuff. Um, you know, on top of the chaos, they're dealing with my brother. Then the little one there, she's going through issues too. So I kind of got a more harsher yelling and that's not the reaction I wanted, you know, cause that just made me feel, wow, I'm really bad now. I'm, they don't like me, you know, and it's really in those moments as like a 10, 11 year old, you're not processing what's really going on. All that you know is you don't feel good. You did this act and um, you got relief, but it's not good because you're not getting good attention, but you want attention from anything at this point. And it just, the equations don't work out the way you think in your brain at that age. So then comes, um, you know, I, I did a, a half, I, you know, I, an overdose, but probably as a child, it wasn't, I didn't know what fatal overdose would have been anyways, but I overdosed on the 
medications that they were giving me kind of as a way to say probably F you, you know, or something, you know. So that was kind of the gateway into what eventually led to your use in addiction. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. 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 Um, So, yeah. And then, you know, also my brother started, I think, smoking pot, maybe drinking. And um, so in my mind, all I can see is he's getting all this attention. Why is it not working out for me? So, so yeah, I had tried weed or pot and alcohol, and then I smoked cigarettes, you know, big old rebel. (laughs) And um, those things don't react well with my body. But it was it was appealing because I was doing something wrong, you know, for some reason. Mm. But it was at 15 when I touched. um, I'm sorry, when I got into cocaine and that gave this instant quick fix to all of life's problems in that moment. And so that is how I quickly found a solution at the time into drugs. Because pills weren't doing what I was told they were supposed to do. They weren't taking away all of this stuff because that's the only way doctors told you to cope is by taking a pill. You know, they knew about my trauma, but it's like, all right, here's your pills for it. And it's it's crazy that I remember the dare guy coming into school and like, you know, grade school with the, the drug kits and talking about all the horrible effects that they and what they did to people. And it scared the crap out of me as a kid. And I thought, I'll never do this and I'll never do that. And, you know, I was going through so much emotions. I felt like I never fit in. I I carried so much guilt and shame. I felt rejected. I felt alone. I felt just utter emptiness, sadness. I didn't want to be touched. And it's like the whole world is touchy lovey dovey touchy and I don't care for it and the first time like when I it was actually the second time that more the second time I did cope that I felt the effects of it the first time I didn't I just knew I was doing something rebellious and it was the second time the effects came over me and instantly I didn't feel any of those bad emotions I felt happy and I felt sociable and I felt like at a 15 year old level, I felt like this is heaven. I found heaven. This is what heaven is. And why is this stuff so bad? And I even knew, you know, friends from high school whose parents were corporate workers, executive workers who lived in nice houses and they drove great cars and they had these big old parties with cocaine everywhere. So I was like, why, why, this is what I, this is what I want. Out of life. That was such a mixed message too, where on one hand, as part of your therapy, you're giving something chemically to alter that state. Mm -hmm. Then you're meeting this other thing and trying to rectify the two. Yeah. To justify on one hand, they're giving me something to mask and numb. And then on the other, I'm finding this thing that allows me to feel that disconnect. Yes. Very good point. Very good point. And it was the the quick fix that I I was looking for. And so it became my coping mechanism. And unfortunately, though, most of us know that no matter most addictions, they don't, they lead to empty pockets, loss of families or loss of self, loss of everything. It's loss. It's not gain. You you know, that self-sabotage. Yes. But that word wasn't really out too much yet. So <laughs> yeah, right. totally. Really and it, it's not accessible to most people as you're traveling through that, unless you yes. get involved with some kind of contact to start yes. to form that vernacular. Because I didn't think I was self-sabotaging. I thought I was in a, in a sixth sense. I, I'm not going to, healing is the closest thing. I felt like that's healing to me it's, because. It becomes that self-soothing. To yes. Kind of disconnect the pain. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, go. So at 15, I I quickly became addicted to that substance. I mean, it's a very, very powerful substance. And um, 
all of my little savings I had was gone. And, and what's even sicker, um, and, and I think many people know that when you have trauma, more trauma happens, more trauma, more trauma, more trauma, you know, especially when you get involved with drugs. I, I look back and it didn't dawn to me until I was listening to myself on another podcast, like just, just rethinking, reliving things, right? Yes. That. When you're buying drugs from somebody and say you're 15 years old, 16, and these people are like past the 18-year-old level and they're trying to mess around with the 15-year-old, 16-year-old sexually, Mm -hmm. you know, what do we call that today? I mean, a pedophile. But when you're 15 or 16, right, and an older person likes you, we're like, oh my God, I am awesome and I am cool. It's so, I I never really thought about that, you know. And so eventually, because I did grow up very honest, I eventually told my mother I had a, and she was seeing obviously behavior patterns and stuff. Yeah, I told her I had a problem with cocaine. She put me into um, a little adolescent facility and even a high school that kind of more for kids that had substance problems and we were able to do homework. So, um, you know, the next part of my experiences in life, even I'm sorry, with the addiction also became this relationships because we live in a society for some reason. I don't, and it's just our society that we need another person for some reason to feel complete or validated and whole. And that's what life's about. At least this is what I kind of felt growing up. My parents have never been divorced. My grandparents were never divorced. And You need a partner in order to feel this complete word. And then you need a career in order to feel this completeness. And when you achieve these things, you will achieve the whatever it is. Such a mixed dichotomy of messages (laughs) there. Part of that being rooted in what we just discussed in my last episode, personal attachment style. Mm -hmm. How you relate in those parental roles growing up. Are you being given that self-image? Are you being given that nurture and support in this circumstance as you move into trauma puts you into that insecure mode where you simply question your ability to be and feel safe? You look for it, as you mentioned now, in the projection of others. That's one angle. That's the most basic angle of it that forms the bulk of. Then we get that specter of mixed messaging throughout society of what love is, of what relationships are, of Finding that soulmate that completes me becomes part of that cycle in some ways. We're looking for a completeness outside of us that's already there, or hopefully we haven't had taken off course. So when you add the drugs, right, I I knew I had an addiction problem and, and all that, but growing up, it was like, okay, then you go to college and then you get married and then you have kids. And so for some reason embedded or or what I thought I'd be healed after that, right? If you find these magical things and you do these magic, you know, or achieving things. It becomes like finding that needle in a haystack or the magic unicorn. So but that's what you believe. That's what I believe. Yeah, that's you, you what think I believe. it's somehow going to shift your state yeah. rather than kind of reconciling who and what is going on there. Yes. So I didn't realize when I was younger and I, I, you know, I had my little boyfriends in high, you know, middle school, high school, whatever, those not so serious ones, but they're so serious at the time, <laughs> you know, and they, they were seem all... so, so charged at the time, don't they? Oh my God. They're, you're going to love them for life. You're going to be tied to them. Yeah. Right. In seventh grade or something. And I do and... hold on to a lot of very deep friendships from some of those past relationships, ironically. But we have that kind of expectation. Yes. And I I wish I would have known about attachment styles back then because I could totally see when I look at my previous relationships, they all were just based on on impulsivity and um, intensity and uh, they were not healthy because... I wish schools taught what a healthy relationship was. And instead, we're teaching classes that are not... Yeah, I wish... Yeah, high schools and stuff it's taught more of healthy. Definitely not in the common vernacular, no. even back into, you know, early parental phases. Something yes. that I kind of 
miraculously, I say, stumbled upon out of dissecting my own relationship with my parents. I had very middle class America upbringing, very kind of middle of the road, very loving, nurturing by all regards. But all of those often normalized experiences of how parents corrected, how parents supported, how parents nurtured did have some of my own interaction with that that I held on to for my own kind of traumatic response. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely not something that's in our common vernacular, much yeah. like it's not in our common vernacular to form those notions of volition or taking some authoritative action in that. And, and you don't, it's, it's sad that you don't get to realize this until you become older and yeah. you hit, you hit your, your breaking point or, or, you know, you hit some turn in your turning point in your life where then you have to go, you know, untangle all the knots that were, in your life and you start looking at everything and you're like, huh, now I, now I get it. <laughs> and so no, when I was, when I was 17, 18, when I was in that high school for addict, <laughs> people are like, does that exist? Yes. It will did in Texas. I don't know, <laughs> you know, and, and throughout this whole time, I, I made good grades. So I became a real people pleaser. I made good grades. I still, I was an, Addicts. Do you feel that was kind of something you leaned upon, not only the people pleasing, but throwing yourself into that kind of educational role to yeah. kind of bridge some of that gap? Oh, yeah. I, 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 um, I, I know you've probably heard like they say the family dynamics, like the rebel and the kind of savior identity. and stuff. It's that, it's that identity construct that we often lean into. I was the kid that that presented well, the education. I think that also kind of helped me disassociate from what was going on in my life, getting into stuff like that, trying to go back. Let's see. So when I was uh, in that high school, I look at my distorted thinking back then, and there was a guy, I labeled myself as just a coke head, right? Nice label, <laughs> right? And he was a heroin addict. And for some reason... I was like, this could work out because we could help each other because yeah. he doesn't like my substance and I don't like his substance. And, and it was, you know, I realized how attached, like clingy I would get with people almost obsessively. Yeah. And that's attachment style, which I've yeah. learned. Yeah. And, and then after that year would go that I was so obsessive, like with them, I wouldn't want them anymore. Like I would get bored with them. And then they chased me. It was a runner chaser dynamic. It's totally yeah. Yeah. because it's, it, it's, I believe it's, it's, it's like a high a categorical self where you are identifying with the label or the role you're playing, which then gives you some kind of sense of feeling an identity, a worth and a value. Yes. And like I said, unfortunately, those words weren't termed back then. Yeah. So all I knew is like, why, why do my relationships, why is it like this? And then I get bored. And then because that one hurts or something, I jump into another one or something. That's those insecure attachment styles running away. Ambivalent, avoidant, dismissive, and disorganized. You're basically turning and running. You're hiding. Yes. So then we get to like adult life. And, and, and so I wasn't always using drugs. I, I do, I, I, I do have, I am a recovering addict, you know, but it wasn't just straight drugs for all these years. I get sober yeah. and, and I get back on course. Right. And like, I went to college, so I stayed sober. I did do the uh, socially drinking. That was a part of the college environment, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I did graduate college I, um, I did get pregnant. I got married because I thought it was the right thing to do. I was, you know, and voila, life is going to be white picket fence, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what happened at all. Why? Well, I've been married three times, right? Been married three times. And, yeah. um, but they were all the same storyline, different character. It's called a pattern. <laughs> You're still searching for that you that's inside that was left back at that trauma point. Oh God, yes. You're looking yes. for that gap, you know, you're back there in that space and that you is still back there before all of these other things started to pile on. Yes. And what's crazy is like, I would, um, I mean, we all want love because, it, and, and not the love, you know, depending on what your situation is, not, not the love from your family, your kids, you want that partner love like of a, 
a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, you know, it, for some reason, it feels good to have somebody next to you, you know, that's, but unfortunately with trauma victims, we choose, we choose, attachment again. but we choose yeah. most likely the predator, <laughs> you know, hindsight. hindsight is often 2020, you know, 2020. I don't know why 2020 become the, I know. the, the ratio there, but it's, it's kind of an equal thing. There's you an don't equal know exchange it. there that, yeah, you lose sight of. And you don't know you're doing it because you're not consciously, sorry, doing it. Sometimes it is in your awareness. Sometimes it's not. That's you, the slippery slope of it. I, I would choose people I knew my parents would like. <laughs> um, yeah. But I wanted them to like them. I wanted, you know, I chose people that had kind of broken paths. They had drug addictions or something that wasn't in the social norms. Because I also became that kind of fixer, the rescuer fixer and all that. And I guess I really thought if I could show somebody maybe the life that they didn't have with family dynamics with my family or how much love I could give them that I could help them. And then in return, maybe they wouldn't leave me. And and that innately feels good. That innately feels empowering. It does, but it doesn't work out like that. <laughs> yeah, well, the cycle is then how do you continue to feed it? Just like yeah. that addiction, how do you continue to feed it? It shifts and that becomes the new addiction. Yeah. How do I continue to feed that addiction? Well, because so what's interesting is I believe I became my label of addiction and thought like the only people that yeah. would ever understand me would be another addict. So I, I did most likely get involved with other yeah. people that had yeah. addiction problems, yeah. right? a big part of my past and to what quote unquote what a normal person would be i felt like any good person would think that i'm absolutely crazy for doing half the stuff that i did let me present this as a question now are you Lindsay, or are you an addict Were you an addict or are you Lindsay? I am Lindsay who had an addiction problem at one time. Categorically, you just separated the label from the self, the real me from the issue and the action. This is why NA or AA, I don't like the, hi, I'm Lindsay, I'm an addict because no, because labels become a big part of my learning experiences, Mm -hmm. how we become them very easily. And, um, so yeah, I, you know, got married, then that didn't work out, got into another marriage and literally it's so sick that I was like, this guy's better than the last one. Cause this one has a job. <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> We're going down that slippery slope. The this last one has a job. Too, right? So my parents like this one better. And I always wanted my parents approval. Mm. Look at that. I always wanted their approval that I was doing something right because I always felt like what I was doing was never good enough. And so there's another thing that screws with your mind is perfectionism, people pleasing and all of this stuff, right? Looking and at that now in hindsight, how have you wrapped your mind around that? Do you have a new perspective on that of looking for that approval out of the parents? Um, it, that one's hard to let go of. Uh, yeah. My parents are very proud of me. They know where I've been. They know my, you know, and they're, they're my support system. I don't know what it is that I still, for some reason, want one day their approval if I ever get into a relationship yeah. again. I'm, I, I'm not still there yet. Okay. Task. I, and I, I, yeah. I wish I could tell you, like, yeah, I've got it down. But, <laughs> but I don't know. I still Baby want steps. to. Yeah. Yeah. I still, yeah. they're my parents. I still want them to be proud of me mm-hmm. and or, or say good job for you yeah. didn't choose an unhealthy one. That, I, and that's, I don't want to say the mission I'm on. It's just, I, I, um, I hope that if I ever get into another relationship, yeah. that it's the one that they say, I'm so proud that this guy takes care of, you know, and it's a healthy, that's what I, I hope. Different circumstances, kind of same ballpark. I had some of my own issues with how I viewed my upbringing. There again, I'm not going back and sliding parents. I had by most regards, a very fairy tale upbringing, but still had my own resolves. I went out and connected with Marissa Pierce online doing some regression therapy, some regression hypnosis. Mm-hmm. That took me back and guided me back, reconnected me 
with that circumstance where I went back and addressed those roles as me as a child and kind of going through and saying, hey, you know, I love you as a child. You are worthy. You know, you validate yourself. You find your meaning. Very productive. Allow me to see that in a whole new light. I know. And, I, and like you, I have very, my parents are super loving. They're very successful. Um, best, my mom is my, one of my best friends. She, you know, I, I love her to death. And it's just, I, I guess I still have this complex of going yeah. like, I'm bad for thinking like they are the ones that caused me to be a perfectionist. And they're the <laughs> one that put, you know, and that. Or, or this is what caused my unhealthy attachments. <laughs> when we can't yeah. find that answer in ourselves or we're right. not empowered in that, we don't feel like we have some interaction with that very often. You know, we try to reflect that somewhere else to find that answer. We've got to find blame somewhere too. Oh, no, <laughs> it's an interesting conundrum that very often rears its head. Yes. And um, so, yeah, I, well, and then let me back up it. 18, 18, 19. Cause I, it's hard when I'm trying to tell if I'm 40 now. So all this story and, um, normally blurs and when you've got other things, other issues, other traumas, other circumstances that really become weighty. Yeah. That's a lot to move beyond. Well, I got out of high school and worked like my first little business job. So I wasn't working retail throughout like high school, you know, and I am, it was when Blockbuster was still around. Yeah. So it was a Blockbuster corporation. And so I felt so, ex, you know, excited that I got to wear nice clothes to work and stuff. Went to a Christmas party with one of the associates or one of the people that worked there. Um, all of a sudden somebody came just from this corporate Christmas party and they had said, Hey, let's leave. And they had cocaine. I had been clean from it, you know, and we were drinking though too, underage, you know, at the corporate party or whatever. And I ended up getting very much taken advantage of, sexually assaulted. And this is back when, oh, this was horrible because things have changed, thankfully, in our world now with sexual assault and stuff. But my mother, I told her what happened, took me to get the whole rape kit done and stuff. And the cops literally came in there. So needless to say, I'm like 18 at this time and told me because drugs and alcohol were involved, that there's no case. And I went home and took a straight blade to my wrist. And I, there's nothing worse than hearing it's your fault. Yeah. In a case like that. So there's another one. At this point, I become so used to trauma. I just, I felt like I could numb it away. I learned to cope and numb it away somehow, yeah. right? So I thought I dealt with it. No, coping and normalizing. It becomes your yeah. frame of reference. Yeah. So I, because I didn't feel it all the time, I felt that I had dealt with it because I was numbing it out. Right. And so, yeah. And then you jump into the marriage. That one didn't work out. You know, then I got married again and literally everything was impulsive. I'd meet somebody, all the signs, all the signs when I look back at it, right. said, warning, do not enter. Don't go to this one. This one's unhealthy. And I just, you know, knock those out of the way. And got involved with somebody very controlling, abusive, usually co-narcissist, narcissist, empath kind of thing. Hmm. And Can I frame uh, something for you here. Yeah. I see an opportunity. That instance where you initially experienced the molestation was a very impulsive, very out of left field occurrence. Mm-hmm. Started to form that pattern for you where things just kind of suddenly appear. It feels normal. (laughs) Man, it's probably what you're thinking. Where's he going with this, Siri? Anyhow, there's a connection there in that pattern that starts to, in your mind, was how do I make sense of this? Because it happened out of left field. It's very unpredictable. It's very kind of without a lot of thought. Starts to establish that thought that that becomes normal. And when you move into things like that, again, that are unpredictable, that are beyond your control, starts to become that subconscious default pattern and mode that that is my normal. I have never heard that, but I am going to agree with that because a lot of things at six. It's a potential. Some, Look at that. No, I, I, with it. I have always that wondered. For you. I've always wondered like what caused 
things to be so now and impulsive and not healthy. And, and that is a very good association yeah. and nobody's really touched. I've been, trust me, through tons of therapy and treatment centers and blah, blah, blah. You can't make sense of why somebody else is unpredictable yet out of that unpredictability, somehow that childhood trauma, that child you says, I'm familiar with that. And Somehow that becomes the replacement that feels like the safe place because you know it was unpredictable. Yeah. By and large, you know, and it expands a little from there. It's a little gray, but it's that unpredictability that becomes the pattern of familiarity. You know it because you've experienced it. So now when it comes creeping in, those circumstances start coming in and you automatically attach to them out of insecurity because Mm -hmm. the insecurity is familiar. Subconsciously, you're not making a lot of sense of it, but it becomes that pattern of familiarity because I know that feeling of insecurity and unfamiliarity. That makes sense. And honestly, most of the time through therapy and all this, I I just kind of left it. um, It's like, okay, she went through trauma. This is why she wasn't, why she did substance. This is why she self-mutilated. This is why she had suicide attempts. And that's all I get out of it. And think about every one of those occurrences. How do those play out? What is the root of it? You're back in a place where, A, you're numbing and losing that sense of knowing, that sense of connectedness to it. Mm -hmm. And it puts you back in that frame of the comfortable unfamiliar. Yes. Comfortable unfamiliar because that's the pattern you know that knowing somehow creates that false sense of security. Well, yeah. And then after six, and then when you jump into relationships, you kind of, you don't forget about what happened, but you forget about the emotions that were there. And so that really does make a lot of sense. Um, That's not to say that's the complete answer to address each one of these different angles, but that does open a door to see another little light on things. It, it does. No, it really does. And sorry, I'm processing. If <laughs> I quit quiet, I'm processing. That might be a big one to sit with. It might be something to just put in your awareness. Well, no, because I, I do everything at the moment to um, never be back in these unhealthy situations that have yeah. kept reoccurring for many, many years. And yeah. even if I was sober, I am sorry, I am sober now, obviously, but, yeah. but even at the times I was sober, I was still in these unhealthy relationships and, and triggers still stay there embodied. It's that embodiment we spoke of. And I'm, you know, that's a whole nother path. You may go into a deeper level of finding how that energy is still stuck in your body and your energy and your experience will probably remain within your soul throughout the rest of your life in some regard. Yeah. Finding that way to reconcile it then becomes part of that path. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I moved, you know, into the next marriage, had another kid. And um, like I said, I'm I'm proud that I graduated college and then I joined the military. But I lost that job because I got back into addiction. So my addictions would resurface because of these unhealthy relationships, if that makes sense. Because I would stay sober and then I'd get into these relationships which were intense at first and seemed like the fairy tale feeling inside and then a year later to the mask would come off somewhere and they would be very unhealthy and then there'd be drugs involved because you know I, I was and that's not just one person's fault you know I, I just I picked people that didn't have the same morals and values I did yeah. I didn't see yeah. that at the time I thought that I could really help or that we could make this fairy tale. And that's another thing I don't like is the whole fairy tales that we get fixated on as especially females, like finding Prince Charming and this happens and that, because you do start thinking that exists. It's following into some of those conditioned patterns of belief. You know, we see a lot of messaging throughout our entire being that says, mm-hmm. this is the story. Yeah. Even within the community of development awareness, there's, a very strong current of that, you know, and that's not to say developing patterns is inherently working against us. Just being aware of those patterns simply allows us to be objective about it and say, what discernment do I make of it? What choice do I make? 
How do I align that with the values I have within me that I know are truly of service of my true sensing of self and identity? Yes. Do I feel like I have to become the fairy tale princess to just be me? And if I do, why and how and how do I make that work in my best interest? Well, and those stories of Cinderella and Snow White and all them, they all, one of them's like pretty, Cinderella is, yeah. she's pretty much abused, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all you frame know, of reference. You know, and then somebody comes and, and sweeps her off her feet and then she lives in a castle it's, and happy, and then the end. That right? is they don't a make very interesting <laughs> observation. Here is a sleeping young lady, and this dashing debonair gentleman comes up and basically fondles her and plants a kiss on her in her sleep. What kind of mess? Happily ever after. <laughs> might be framed in that. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. Hmm. No. I'm going to leave that one out there because that's one to sit with. You know, what is the message in that then? That well, probably was escaping everybody at the time of writing that. Yeah. But essentially, is that not? This is kind of a difficult topic to come up with you, but is that not in some way very much like that experience of assault and abuse? Yeah. Well, like I said, Cinderella reminds, I mean, she was uh, verbally abused and, and, you know, her parents are killed. There's trauma there and she's totally just, Mm. you know, Snow White. We always laugh. She lived with how many men? <laughs> that, that's curious. That, that's curious. It's frame of reference and perspective, but it's curious to say, let's just observe the patterns and what might they be telling? How might those characters be playing out if we mirror that in real life in our own lives? How might I be going back to that pattern of unfamiliarity of one dwarf? to the next, (laughs) which can't sound very judgmental, but one individual to the next, you know, is just a good way to sit and look at it. It creates its own illustration of some of these experiences. And that's why I say it's not just the trauma, like the whole social, the the way the society is, is has distorted so many things just by the way it is, I guess has really caused people to lose themselves. And, you know, it, it just, it's, like, I understand I have, I have children, you know, so stories are to bring open imagination and stuff, but, but sometimes we believe, we, we start believing them. Yeah. One day somebody's going to rescue me as a story. One day somebody in all this pain and suffering is supposed to rescue me. And I guess if they don't, then nobody loves me and likes me and I shouldn't be here anymore. It's just kind of, so, I mean. Again, we go back to how much of that is rooted in our forming of our attachment style. We are in that circumstance where as a child, we come in as kind of an underformed, what we deem blank slate. And we have to try to match with parenting (laughs) which guides us to that other point. If that parenting hasn't been given that skill or task and brought it into their awareness alignment, they are working with the tools they're working with. Whether or not they're given it or they find it, they're working with the tools they currently are present with. And then we have all of those outside forces of influence that call into play so often. So that's well beyond you and I and our experiences, but that does become relevant as we look at it. How do we filter that information in a meaningful way that becomes value driven for us? Yep. We've followed along with Lindsay through the early stages of her traumatic experiences. You've heard a few incidents detailing this journey. Join us tomorrow for part two as we continue to unravel this emotional ride right here on the light inside.